Hey, this is Mohal Joshi from Los Angeles, California. I follow Indian foreign policy and defense with a special focus on Asia. You can follow me on Twitter at Mohal Joshi. Hey, this is Kishore Narayan from Bengaluru in India. I am an international relations expert specializing in global security, conflict resolution, and international negotiation. My focus areas include peace building and digital diplomacy. You can find me on Twitter at Veggie Diplomat. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of India Rising, Strategic Affairs Conversations with Mohal and Kishore. In this episode, episode 38, we look at the twin crises plaguing India's neighborhood. Pakistan and Sri Lanka, uh, the economic crisis in them, which have now metamorphosed into political crises and how India is dealing with them. But, we, but before we delve into them, we urge you, the listeners, to subscribe to our channel, India Rising, wherever you are listening to us. Also, if you are listening to us on YouTube, don't forget to press the bell icon to be notified about our new episodes. And lastly, if you have not left us a review, we urge you to do so as it helps other listeners like you in finding us. Now let's get started with today's topic. Two countries in India's neighborhood, Pakistan and Sri Lanka, are faced with economic crises and have slowly taken the shape of acute political crises. While Pakistan is most certainly going to face fresh elections, barring a Supreme Court intervention, Sri Lanka's Council of Ministers have all resigned and now there are talks of a national government to overcome the economic rut that they find themselves in. So let's begin with uh, Pakistan first. So uh, with respect to Pakistan, it is important that we look at the main sequence of events, uh, starting from say the first week of March, when the opposition uh, approached the speaker asking for a vote of no confidence in the National Assembly. Remember, the, the House of Representatives in the Pakistani Parliament is called the National Assembly, and the members there are called MNA, Members of National Assembly. So uh, the United Opposition, led by Shahbaz Sharif, the brother of Nawaz Sharif, who now leads the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz, uh, ably supported by uh, Bilawal Bhutto Sardari of the Pakistan People's Party, the son of uh, uh, Benazir Bhutto, and then uh, uh, Fasal Ur Rahman, who heads the Jamiat Ulema Islami, uh, this uh, united opposition uh, submitted a, a memorandum for vote of no confidence on the 9th of May or the uh, on the 9th of March or the 8th of March. Now, as per the constitution, uh, this can be, uh, as per the Pakistani constitution, this can be uh, submitted even while the uh, assembly is not in session. But uh, immediately after doing so, the session has to be convened. And within 14 days, the uh, within 10 days, the uh, assembly will have to be convened and the vote of no confidence has to be carried out. But then the, the speaker in the National Assembly, who himself hailed from the PTI, Pakistan Tehreek-e Insaf, the party that party of uh, uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan, 
who is now the ex-prime minister, the speaker himself uh, played uh, delay tactics and then interpreted uh, this as not 10 uh, working day, uh, not as 10 calendar days, but as 10 working days and somehow pushed it to uh, allow uh, Imran Khan to get more time. So eventually, after much delay dialing and much of delay tactics, uh, Imran Khan uh, tried uh, addressing the people of the of the nation, both in terms of uh, uh, open rallies in Islamabad and also uh, on TV, kept saying that the united opposition has now ganged up with the outsiders and uh, also uh, said that uh, these people now are willing to sell their country to the outsiders and therefore are willing to bring down a democratically elected government of uh, imran khan however be that as it may uh, the constitutional process uh, was was kind of uh, something that Imran Khan could not delay or Imran Khan could not get away with. And eventually uh, the opposition went to the courts and the court said nothing doing, you cannot delay this. So uh, the speaker had to convene the assembly and had to uh, get the uh, vote of no confidence underway. Now, as it was uh, scheduled, speaker again kind of played around and said, that uh, uh, I will not convene this, uh, I will not allow the vote of no confidence simply because there is a foreign threat, which we will talk about uh, in a while. And because there is a foreign threat, the vote of no confidence stands dismissed. And therefore, this allowed uh, the uh, government of Imran Khan to not be embarrassed by a defeat on the floor of the house. Therefore, uh, Imran Khan's next move was to directly resign, go to the president and ask for immediate elections. Now, uh, the president himself allowed this. He accepted the resignation of uh, Imran Khan and uh, ordered fresh elections within 90 days. The opposition obviously uh, went to the courts and asked for reinstatement of the National Assembly and also uh, asked for the vote of no confidence to be held. Uh, the Supreme Court, uh, in its wisdom, in all its wisdom, allowed the uh, National Assembly to be reinstated and allowed the vote of no confidence to be held. The Speaker, again, this time around, uh, played a little more uh, uh, delay tactics on the final day. He kind of tried pushing it where uh, Imran Khan was trying to uh, broker some kind of a truce with everybody involved. But while that was not happening, eventually uh, late in the night, the speaker himself resigned and uh, the chief of the Senate uh, committee, uh, chairperson, he uh, had to conduct the uh, proceedings of the house. And eventually the vote of no confidence was tabled and the joint opposition showed enough numbers, 174, whereas the majority mark was 172. And all this eventually led to uh, Imran Khan being defeated on the floor of the house. So uh, this was the political play uh, uh, in process in uh, Islamabad and Rawalpindi during the entire month of uh, uh, March, where obviously Imran Khan tried, uh, uh, tried to avoid the inevitable for as long as he could. However, the problems did not start just then. The problems started almost a year ago 
uh, when uh, when Imran Khan uh, kind of uh, uh, broke all his uh, uh, friendly relations with the army chief uh, General uh, Kamal Javed Bajwa and uh, Mohal, can you talk about that of how uh, the relations soared between the executive and the army? Yeah, so um, I think in the fall of last year, uh, I think it was like the October or November, there was the time to appoint a new, uh, I mean, the new ISI chief. Now, mm -hmm. the incumbent at the time, Fez uh, Ahmed, I, I, I hope I'm getting the right, mm. Fez Ahmed, right? Yes. Yeah, so uh, Fez Ahmed, he was kind of close to Imran Khan, it has been said. I mean, he has been a, uh, I mean, as you know, the army always is like involved in the local politics of mm. Pakistan. So it was rumored that uh, he was kind of a, a master political manipulator. I mean, during the 2018, when we all knew that the elections were kind of rigged in favor of Imran Khan, he helped uh, the PTI, uh, the Imran Khan's party to win the election. I mean, they didn't get a majority, obviously, but uh, they were the single largest party. So since then, Imran had developed closeness with him. Now, in uh, this didn't uh, endear himself to the chief of army staff, General Bajwa, who was not happy that uh, Imran wanted to give him an extension to the current DG, uh, Director General of ISI. So Imran uh, Khan uh, and Bajwa were on the opposite sides of it. So Bajwa wanted to appoint his own men as the uh, new DGISI, while uh, Imran Khan wanted first to continue. Now, usually the procedure is that the army recommends a name and it is sent to the government for approval, which is, I mean, you can call it a kind of rubber stamp, but sometimes uh, the army, uh, I mean, technically the civilian government has the final call, but the, it's kind of rubber stamp by the army because the army sends a few choices. Now, what happened back then was that without uh, notifying, I mean, without technically sending the recommendation uh, to the government, I think what happened was that the army said like, oh, this is the new guy, uh, DGISI and uh, uh, Imran Khan wasn't happened. So he stalled the recommendation by not approving it mm. on paper. So there was a schism between uh, the Bajwa and Imran Khan. Now, the rumor is that uh, Imran Khan, since like Bajwa, uh, sorry, since uh, Fez Ahmed helped him out a lot in 2018, the goal for him was that once the term of the current chief of army staff, um, uh, General Bajwa, ends in November of 2022, that is like mm. uh, just like six months-ish from now, he will appoint uh, Fez Ahmed as the new chief of army staff. And for the interim, he wanted Fez Ahmed to continue uh, so can he keep, can keep a control on things like Imran Khan and then once Bajwa retires he can he make him the chief of army staff which will in turn in a quid pro quo kind of move he will help out Imran Khan to win the 2023 elections uh, by uh, by like rigging them again in favor of Imran Khan so Imran Khan was looking for like more of a political preservation but as you know and no civilian government can uh, cross the army, I mean, cross or like, you know, get in the uh, bad books of the army and survive. So uh, Imran Khan like was always fighting another battle. I mean, eventually he did relent and he appointed whoever the, the army wanted. I mean, uh, sorry, I can't recall the name right now. 
Yeah, but, uh, I think it's Nadim something. Even I'm not very sure. Yeah, 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 Nadim. Yeah. So uh, the new ISI chief was appointed, but that started the fracture between Imran Khan and uh, General Bajwa. Right. Uh, which uh, and then also obviously we know that the economy is not doing too good. I mean, economically, Imran Khan had promised a new Pakistan. <laughs> uh, where he wanted to free them from the influence of the 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 other ruling elites so he came on to the like as a sort of i mean some people might call it and those are their words not my like a fresh of breath air into pakistani politics mm. but i mean if you look at the economic situation i mean just today i read an article that uh, they are like 6000 megawatts short of what they wanted to produce i mean the demand was 21000 megawatts but they can only produce like 15000 megawatt of electricity uh, the rupee since imran khan took over has fallen from around 25 plus percent from 140 to the dollar to 180 versus the dollar so the economic situation has not been better like even imports of natural gas and other stuff has been um, curtailed i believe like last year uh, they wanted a new loan from saudi arabia but what ended up happening was they was given to pakistan under very strict circumstances where a, a non repayment of loan meant they could demand the entire principal mm. uh, in a week or something which is kind of unheard of in uh, the i mean the usual like lending circles like this is mm. not the term so i mean it, it was like sliding Uh, down so the army didn't see any merit since anyways they had picked up of imran had picked up a fight with uh, general bajwa i mean given all this economic hardships uh, they didn't see any merit in uh, backing imran khan so i mean technically they are saying i mean the army did in a statement some time ago say that oh we are kind of neutral but i mean they are always covertly or overtly supporting some side in this they just wanted to step back and say like you know okay we won't backstop imran anymore and let him fall Hmm. Sure. In fact, uh, uh, one thing that Imran Khan used to uh, tom tom about when he came to power was a new concept called complex governance, wherein uh, uh, he <laughs> he he said that uh, I am in the good books of the army, the army is in the good books of the prime minister, the prime minister prime minister is the supreme uh, authority uh, uh, in the country, and uh, I will allow <coughs> army to. take decisions when it comes to national security defense international relations and geopolitics and army uh, will not um, meddle with uh, the internal uh, internal affairs including uh, finance so i can ensure that we get all the loans i can ensure that uh, we can rebuild uh, pakistan naya pakistan as you rightly pointed out so this was the kind of uh, 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 a new term that Imran Khan had pointed out. However, uh, since the uh, the ISI episode that you uh, elaborated on, uh, and also the US episode which we'll uh, uh, effectively talk about next, I think uh, this uh, this uh, arrangement kind of uh, fell fell apart, and obviously, army also wanted uh, to see the back of Imran Mohan. Yeah, I mean, even like the army part. i mean even on national security and external affairs i mean imran i know he waved this famous piece of paper or now infamous whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it like saying there was a conspiracy against him mm. by the united states and i think you can go into the details mm. later mm. on like mm. uh, with the what was supposedly reported um but like the army wasn't too happy i mean they know that america has been their benefactor even though they had a disagreements on afghanistan withdrawal and uh, precisely yeah. forward 
uh, the army wasn't too happy that he was messing up relations with United States. Uh, so that that also meant like Imran had to go because they he was just making uh, life tougher for the army. Mm. And one last thing about the opposition dynamic. So, I mean, uh, the veteran Pakistani journalist Hamid Mir recently said that uh, that like around two years ago, I believe in 2020, uh, like the opposition wanted to move move a vote of no confidence. But what ended up happening was that the opposition was not united. I mean, we have the Buntos mm. and the Zardaris on one side and also the Sharifs on the other side. So there was no kind of opposition unity. So Imran, was, I mean, as per like Hamid Mir, he even goaded them saying like, hey, if you are so confident, why don't you bring a uh, vote of mm. no confidence? So at that time, they were not able to do so because there was no kind of unity. Mm. Now, the opposition... I mean, all the, I mean, whatever you want to call it, like a Mahagat Bandhan of sorts or whatever, like mm-hmm. disparate groups which were fighting each other just to see the back of Imran United in early 2022. And they took up the challenge that Imran threw at them two years ago to say that, hey, okay, we want to see the back of you for short term, we will reconcile. And I mean, I don't know like how long this new government lasts. Mm-hmm. I mean, anyways, we have election in one year. So maybe there might be elections sooner than that. But uh, they just ganged up and they said, okay, we'll get rid of Imran. And even some of the allies at the last moment defected from Imran's alliance to uh, yep. uh, vote. So, yep. uh, Kishore, uh, sorry, if you want to make a point, otherwise, I was thinking like, if you could elaborate on this famous piece of paper and what happened with the United States <laughs> in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one quick point before we jump in, uh, jump mm-hmm. into that. Uh, I think uh, it was quite obvious that uh, when the opposition... Uh, kind of uh, came together uh, and uh, they uh, it was kind of obvious that uh, Imran was not in the good books of the army. I think uh, the opposition also knocked on the army and uh, kind of said that uh, uh, if you are okay, we will kind of bring down Imran Khan. So I think there was some kind of a tacit approval from the mm-hmm. army itself yeah. to have this kind of a, uh, embarrassment for Imran right in the floor of the uh, National Assembly. So I think this was all well staged by the army and the united opposition. And that is why Imran Khan was not, was not pleased at all. But anyway, now uh, one, one more reason why Imran Khan was not pleased apparently was uh, just on the eve of, uh, uh, no, not, not just on the eve of uh, uh, Imran Khan's visit to Russia, but immediately after that, uh, we all know that Imran went to Moscow, he met Putin, this was uh, on the day that, uh, uh, or maybe one day, one day after no, Russia no, had invaded. Exactly the, exactly the day, and okay. when asked by media persons, like, um, like how do you feel, it's an exciting time, I mean, like, why would you use those <laughs> kind of words, like, why would you say, like, when people are dying, and even there is a war, I mean, no leader in the right mind, would say like, oh, what an exciting time to be here. And I think even the army, supposedly, I mean, the rumors are that they didn't want him to visit Moscow because of mm-hmm. the prevailing tensions, but he still went ahead with the trip. And I mean, the army hey. wasn't too happy with it. Yeah, defi- definitely not Imran Khan, who was uh, Oxford uh, <laughs> and <laughs> educated. I don't think uh, uh, exciting times would be apt way of uh, describing his visit. <laughs> yeah, so what happened then was uh, just like uh, every other country, uh, US also was not too pleased with uh, its old ally in South Asia, uh, Pakistan visiting uh, uh, Russia at a very critical moment. 
I mean, especially because Joe Biden was trying to rally up his alliances all over the world and wanting to isolate uh, Russia uh, during uh, its invasion of uh, Ukraine. So uh, obviously, every every ambassador from every uh, embassy uh, obviously would have sent out a note to uh, their masters in DC telling, hey, uh, this government or this prime minister is hell-bent on visiting uh, Russia wanting to expand uh, their horizon, uh, wanting to see the world as a multilateral world, and so on and so forth. And I think uh, as part of that explanation, they would, have, uh, they would have even quoted that as long as Imran is around, probably we will not, uh, we will continue to see this kind of uh, open, uh, open extending of arms to uh, uh, handshake with uh, Russia. And I think uh, this was something that uh, Imran Khan grossly misunderstood. He, I think, misunderstood it as an American attempt to dislodge him. And while, mm. while, uh, uh, while he, he misinterpreted it, he also tried to uh, use it for his own political gains. So what he did was uh, he looked at the sequence of events. That letter or that uh, oral, uh, oral threat from the uh, uh, from uh, U.S. Uh, officer to the uh, Pakistani uh, yeah, so, ambassador. Uh, let me just give a background. So mm-hmm. the officer you're referring to is uh, Donald Liu. Donald uh, Liu, yep, yep. Who is the Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asian Affairs? Okay. So uh, I mean that's like a Joint Secretary on Indian level. So I mean I mean who I mean if they wanted to deliver a threat, why would they use a uh, somebody in let's say in India the jo- if I were to threaten my neighbor, I mean I wouldn't be using like the Joint Secretary level. I mean I would do a much more open statement from the somebody higher up, right? I mean, absolutely. <laughs> kind of absolutely. So, I mean, see, like in the US, whenever they're not happy with an ally, they might send a message that, okay, we are not happy with the Imran Khan government. Mm. We would like to see somebody else. But that, uh, I think, I mean, nobody knows what was exactly said. So, Donald Lu said something to the Pakistan ambassador to the US, Asad right. Rajin. Mm. Now, I mean, you know, it's like that telephone game you play, like, you know, one guy says something and then the second guy gets to say by that and then the message gets completely destroyed. Now it Absolutely, could easily happen, yeah. even though we're talking about only two links. Okay. So the mm. Donald Lu to Asad Majid and Asad Majid to Imran Khan, mm. <laughs> I mean, the amount of distortion in the message would be enormous. I mean, so many times if, uh, uh, the, let's say Donald Lu says, okay, I'm not happy with this government and we, we wouldn't mind seeing a new government. That doesn't mean that there's a foreign conspiracy mm. to dislodge. Mm. Imran, I think Imran Khan just extrapolated it way too Absolutely, much. Absolutely, yeah. And he saw a threat from the opposition. So he thought, okay, sub mile, it's like a sub mile who a comment, like mm. you know, everybody's ganging up to. And, uh, and, the, and the timing also, uh, that apparent uh, threat came on the 7th or the 8th of March. And, yeah, and yeah. the uh, United Opposition, they uh, uh, put in a vo- uh, proposal for vote of no confidence the very next day, mm-hmm. on the 9th of March. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Uh, Imran Khan, for, for Imran Khan, this was very convenient. He thought that all these things can be done within a span of 24 hours. The opposition can get united. They can listen to the uh, American uh, secretary and they can bring in a uh, vote of no confidence proposal. So I think uh, obviously, as you said, he not only misinterpreted, but also grossly uh, miscalculated uh, uh, his, uh, his clout with the American officials. 
anyway so uh, so uh, while while all this was happening he not only uh, i mean obviously the uh, pakistani ambassador he brought in uh, his own version a report and that report was discussed within the national security council national security council in pakistan includes the prime minister the defense minister uh, the internal uh, security uh, the home affairs and uh, the national security uh, advisor and also the uh, army uh, army higher ups so apparently even in that national national security council meeting as per imran khan uh, everybody uh, kind of were on the same page thinking that this was an unaccepted uh, needling by the americans but again uh, imran khan continues to say that uh, the national security council itself was of the view that this was foreign uh, interference and and also a foreign conspiracy to dethrone him so again uh, this time around he was now leaning or leaning on uh, the national security council's recommendations or inferences to make his own political brownie points mohal yeah and then i think another point i wanted to bring up is that let's say this conspiracy so called by imran khan happened on the march of march 7 hmm. now the uh, the us under secretary for uh, civilian security uh, democracy and human rights hmm. uh, uzra zaya she visited pakistan who was hosting the oic meet on 21st march i mean i Correct. think there are like pictures online if you see like where uh, i believe the external affairs sorry not external sorry they call it foreign minister in pakistan the foreign minister of pakistan smiling yeah uh, uh, kureshi like shah mahmood kureshi yeah 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 so shah mahmood kureshi he had like smiling pictures <laughs> with uh, uzra zaya so now the question is if there was a conspiracy two weeks prior to met 7 to dislodge why was the foreign minister under of imran khan uh, invited first of all under us under secretary to come to the oic meet mm-hmm. and there were like smiling pictures which were tweeted out through official media sources so if somebody is trying to actively dislodge you why would you even entertain somebody as low as a, i mean an under secretary at a such an important which was kind of prestigious for pakistan the oic meet it makes right. no sense you know he, i mean imran khan just made it up as we as he went along mm-hmm. uh, right. to just exaggerate the threat i mean it would be a i mean this is kind of plain i mean uh, a plain worded talk with donald lute with the us uh, ambassador hmm. uh, asad majid like i think it's been just grossly misinterpreted for uh, domestic political uh, consequences true true i think these kind of uh, uh, cables they uh, they are sent uh, almost almost quite regularly, regularly. from okay. from every embassy back to dc and uh, obviously imran khan thought that this could be a lifeline for him and yeah. using the foreign conspiracy angle he can uh, dismiss the vote of no confidence and he yeah, can I mean, continue to stay i think that yeah, was I mean, a ploy mm-hmm. yeah i mean even the article 5 of the constitution i mean when i was reading up on it uh, through mm-hmm. the other expert they say like this is like you know this is kind of treason so mm-hmm. if everybody committed treason then you you're not supposed to suspend parliament you're supposed to bring charges and charge them in a court of law exactly I mean, and he just he just wanted to suspend it i mean i mean it doesn't make sense like if somebody did treason why would you suspend parliament <laughs> Uh, i mean give reins to somebody else who could maybe not even prosecute those folks so it was just like kind of uh, uh, ridiculous like that he, he just found a straw to clutch on and i think imran Absolutely. khan just went with it 
I mean, I mean, he had nothing else to hold on to, so he made this into a the biggest, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, biggest issue. L- like a prestige issue, you know, like uh, uh, like you know, in the US, we had this kind of okay, the election was stolen from me. Everybody has ganged up against me, kind of mm, uh, mm, rant mm. by Trump. Like he just took it to on a, a local, and he has a uh, quite a bit of fan following in Pakistan. I mean, a lot of the people have been disillusioned with the two families which have been running Pakistan for decades, like the uh, the Sharifs and the Butos, Zardari uh, and the Butos. Mm-hmm. So he thought, okay, my popularity is so much that people will come out of the streets, and some people have come out. I mean, it doesn't mean it's a majority. I mean, even in two thousand eighteen, at the peak of his popularity, he couldn't win a simple majority. So I don't mm-hmm. know what mm-hmm. the future holds for him. But uh, interesting times with now Shabash Sharif as the new prime minister. Right, and and even even there, uh, uh, Article Five that you pointed out, uh, the punishment for uh, treason is actually death sentence. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and 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 there was no, a... not being suspended not being suspended for parliament okay <laughs> yeah and and the contrary in argument that i kept hearing during that time was now if uh, if anybody has to be uh, punished for treason it it actually has to be imran khan so that was the contrary in view uh, that uh, i was hearing during that time but anyway so uh, so what imran khan oh sorry one second and then also like uh, speaking of punishment i mean the 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 visual images of that police van uh, <laughs> for to, to for prisons like mm-hmm. parking outside the parliament i think was a kind of a shot across the bow by the army that uh, that you know if somebody is not behaving we just going to send them to jail you know i think that set the maybe the speaker straight in the end where the image of the prison van meant like okay if you are not obeying supreme court orders you better be ready to go to jail in that case you know and it gets even more funnier i am not going to conclude anything uh, but then, ever since uh, he has lost power, uh, whenever Imran Khan has faced the camera, he has put his uh, shades on. So uh, you can you can come to any conclusion you want. What happened that day when uh, uh, General Bajwa came to the Prime Minister's residence? So you can decide what would have happened. Suppose supposedly. Supposedly, yes. I'm not going to say anything. But uh, yeah, I mean uh, that's how uh, things turned out. But then. Uh, uh, the the reason why I said uh, uh, treason is punishable by death sentence is uh, uh, Imran Khan wanted to bring a comparison between him and Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, the grandfather of uh, Bilawal Bhutto Sardari, and kind of tell that there was a foreign policy, foreign conspiracy to dislodge uh, Bilawal, uh, uh, foreign conspiracy to dislodge uh, Zulfikar Ali, uh, Ali Bhutto. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the same thing is happening right now. America then did not like uh, Pakistan uh, shaking hands with China. Zulfikar uh, Ali Bhutto wanted a, wanted a diverse foreign policy, wanted to have friendly relations with everybody. America did not like that back then. America is not liking what I am doing right now. Uh, uh, I went to Russia. That is something that they don't like. But uh, see, uh, Indian Prime Minister buys oil from Russia. Nobody has the gall to uh, uh, penalize India for that. Why are we being penalized just because I went to Moscow uh, at that same moment. So I think that was the kind of uh, parallel that he was drawing. And I think, uh, again, uh, politically, he wanted to snatch all the uh, electorate of uh, uh, Pakistan People's Party, the uh, Bhutto Sardari Party. But I don't think uh, people bought into it, obviously. And uh, Bilawal also uh, made uh, politically mature statements 
while he said that it does not matter whether there is a foreign angle or not, that is simply that you have lost uh, support on in the floor of the house, and that is why you are going to uh, lose on the day of the vote of no confidence. Mohan? Yeah, I think um, that's where I think one of the problems for Pakistan army remains that who is the next leader? I mean, Shabazz Sharif is like an interim solution. I mean, mm-hmm. that everybody can agree upon. Interestingly, his son is again the son, uh, the chief minister of Punjab province. Hamza, so some, Hamza Sharif, yeah. Yeah, so some people won't be happy that it's again the return of the two families. I'm not sure how much Imran Khan can milk this factor mm-hmm. that uh, I was the new face of Pakistan in the next election. But uh, I think unlike when Nawaz Sharif was uh, was forced to step down due to the corruption scandal like in 2017 or 18, I forget the exact mm-hmm. time frame, like five years ago, the thing was that there was uh, somebody to elect him, but Imran Khan being a, being a one-man show, I mean, technically, the question was being asked is like, why couldn't he step down like Nawaz Sharif and hand over mm-hmm. the reins of PTI to a new prime minister and maybe the allies might have supported him to that mm-hmm. end. Mm-hmm. But I mean, Imran Khan being a one-man show, I'm not sure like anybody would have, uh, he would have allowed anybody else to become the prime minister. True, true. So, but there also lies another problem for the army. I mean, army usually has found one candidate to back. I mean, usually it's been either the Bhutto's or like it was Sharif in 2013 and Imran Khan in 2018. So due to a lack of any particular person who they can throw their lot with, I think they're just taking this neutral, uh, so-called neutrals. And even though we know that the, the deep state in Pakistan is much more powerful than that and can make a pauper uh, king uh, on any given day. So they just, they have to like now figure out like who is going to be the next guy they're going to back because right now there are, there are like no good choices left and mm, they're stuck mm. in this quagmire politically for the time being, you know. Yeah. And then a couple of days ago, uh, General Bajwa himself uh, uh, attended a press conference and he made uh, a few pertinent points. He said, we continue to remain neutral. We mm-hmm. wanted uh, close ties with uh, America. Yeah. We we do not uh, endorse the view of Imran Khan that there was a foreign conspiracy. And mm-hmm. uh, again, there was one more point that I uh, forget uh, uh, right now. But I think essentially what they what uh, General Bajwa said was he negated every claim of Imran Khan essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that way. Uh, the doors are closed. Doors of reconciliation are closed. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, Imran Khan's uh, political career also might be coming to a complete full stop for the time being, yeah, especially with all the corruption cases that are being yeah. lodged on him. But I think with in in politics, you never say never. So he might come back. But oh yeah, yeah, definitely in definitely how in Pakistani politics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, in DG uh, IS uh, ISPR, like he did mention that General Bajar doesn't want another extension. I mean, even the second Hmm. extension Hmm. was kind of unprecedented because of the events post Bala. Ah, right. That was the point. Yes. Yeah. But. he said like he doesn't want another term. So now the question is who's going to be the new chief of army staff because he's going to call the shots. So probably the army might just want this civilian government, the weak civilian government to continue because that way Bajwa can appoint his successor. Mm-hmm. And once the transition happens in November, 2020, I mean, General Bajwa is making the right noises that I don't want to continue anymore uh, reportedly. I think once he has his successor, maybe the current Pakistan government might fall after that because then the army sees no merit in continuing. But maybe General Bajwa needs that his successor to be successfully appointed, even though it's like a rubber stamp process, as we said before. 
like with the ISI chief and then maybe after that the government collapses that would be the my if I had to bet on some future like maybe continue till November this government and then maybe some political or economic crisis brings this coalition government down and by the time mm. Bajwa appoints his uh, so-called successor so because he doesn't I mean he also has a, another schism with Fez Ahmed because Fez was sort of uh, closer to uh, Imran Khan. Right, right. And even politically, I think uh, whatever has happened uh, was good for the opposition. But uh, going forward, I think this is an even bigger uh, hurdle for the opposition. I mean, obviously, Bilawal Bhutto Sardari made the, uh, made the largest concession when he allowed uh, Shahbaz Sharif to become the prime minister. One, mm-hmm. Shahbaz Sharif himself would be watching his own back. Uh, knowing that uh, either Nawaz Sharif would return or he would want his daughter Maryam uh, Sharif to become mm-hmm. the next prime minister. So I think that way there would be a sibling rivalry within the party. <laughs> and uh, while while these two are fighting, uh, Maulana Fasnur Rahman uh, of uh, the uh, JUI party, he himself would want to uh, as, as quickly as possible become the president of the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. So I think all, all these three people uh, would, uh, including uh, Nawaz Sharif, uh, four people, would be busy calculating what their next moves will be politically. And I think that uh, will, uh, that will uh, kind of endorse uh, Imran Khan's view that the opposition was united only until they brought him down. But then after their infighting uh, uh, continues and uh, there is no future, uh, if you vote for them. So I think that is, uh, that is what Imran will be uh, wanting to point out to the electorate. Yeah, I think the Shabazz, I think this reportedly, I mean, from what I read is like, supposedly he knows what the army wants. So he will try to st- steer clear of the getting into a new tangle with the army, especially mm-hmm. with the upcoming uh, new chief of army staff appointment in November. Mm. But yeah, you bring a good point that nobody knows if Nawaz will be able to come back with all the cases pending against him. Hmm. Or will they be washed away now that uh, the army needs the sheriffs back in the saddle? But hmm. uh, I mean, given his history with his brother, Nawaz Sharif, who was twice deposed by the army, uh, he will just be cautious to just let it run as things may till the next election in 2023. Absolutely. And yeah, uh, the next election had hardly uh, 17, 18 months left. Uh, I think in uh, uh, July, August of 2023. Yeah, I think it's in, I think the last time it was held in Ju- yeah, July, August. July, like, yeah. I mean, actually, it would make it 15 months, right? Not even 18 months. So. Correct. Yeah, much earlier. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, everybody would already be in election mode, uh, knowing very well that uh, the, uh, what what positions they hold now are only temporary in nature. Yeah. So I think uh, that is what we wanted to discuss about Pakistan. You have any uh, closing comments about Pakistan before we move on to Sri Lanka? No, uh, I guess. I mean, the main thing is the economic crisis also has to be washed. I mean, as we'll cover in Sri Lanka in a couple of minutes, <laughs> I think uh, stabilization of the economy, because a lot of the fuel subsidies were given by Imran Khan now, whether they can be sustainable or they f- mm. face a kind of crisis like Sri Lanka is to be seen like Pakistan, you know. Yeah, FATF, grey left continues to be a burning issue for them. They are just not able to get out from there. One uh, somehow uh, the army kind of got a concession from uh, the Indian government about uh, implementing the long pending uh, ceasefire. So I think that was a small victory for them. 
the other one again as you rightly pointed out was the IMF bailout whatever they can and uh, again uh, while Imran Khan was in power uh, just because IMF uh, was forcing them uh, the uh, PTI government had uh, uh, I think they had made a huge uh, uh, tax increase by passing a law in the, their national assembly without uh, taking the opposition into confidence so I think that is how uh, IMF uh, uh, sword uh, hangs over their head and uh, the new government also will have to uh, toe the line uh, laid out by IMF. Yeah, I think the, I mean, we talked a lot about the political crisis, but the economic crisis is going to become as worse, if not, uh, I mean, more uh, severe than Sri Lanka in the long right. run, I think. Right, uh, right. That will be the biggest challenge of the new government. I mean, as we see, like all across the globe, there are a lot of mm. economic crisis uh, popping up. So. Yep, yep. Okay, let's move on to uh, uh, Sri Lanka. We'll focus on what's happening there. In fact, uh, as we record, it's Easter Sunday. And uh, when we talk of Easter Sunday and Sri Lanka, we all uh, are reminded of the Easter Sunday bombings that uh, happened in Sri Lanka. And we had an episode uh, where we covered uh, uh, that event uh, quite uh, elaborately in one of our earlier episodes. I think it was episode 18, if we are not mistaken. So uh, that just a programming note. But uh, yes, Mohan, uh, you want to uh, you want to talk about that, or uh, you want me to uh, uh, set the stage for the economic crisis? Yeah, you can set the stage for. Yeah, it was it was interesting that now that you say that uh, it was around two years ago. Uh, actually, three years ago, right? I mean, time 20, 20, 20, 2019, Yeah, three years ago. Yeah, yeah, three years ago when they had the Easter bombings. I mean, this was like, I mean, pre-COVID life now seems to be like, a, I mean, in ages ago, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, exactly uh, three years ago when they had this uh, bombings where I think over 250 people died and mm-hmm. uh, it was a massive yeah. uh, shock to the Sri Lankans. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so just to put into context, uh, what we see in Sri Lanka right now is a classic case of economic mismanagement. And this... Uh, is the worst economic crisis in Sri Lanka since its independence in 1948. In fact, uh, trust me when I say that Sri Lanka has had multiple economic crises and they've they've uh, been forced to go to uh, IMF and other sovereign uh, lending. 16 times. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, 16 bailouts from IMF themselves. Even otherwise, they've, uh, they've knocked on pretty much everyone's door uh, ever since they became uh, independent, but this is their worst economic crisis. Why? Because their usable foreign currency reserves have now dipped below $1 billion. Also, the government has now announced that it will default on all foreign debt payments. Why? Because there have been long lines for uh, scarce fuel. Apparently, not apparently, there have been uh, uh, published reports that Folks have died while waiting in uh, petrol or gas lines. There have been acute food shortages. There have been power cuts. And uh, there have been medicine shortages. Although the government has not uh, uh, confirmed this, but the medical fraternity have claimed that there are acute medicine shortages also. All these are now common sight right across uh, Sri Lanka. And as per the February data, inflation in Sri Lanka is currently at 17.5%. 17.5%. Standard & Poor, uh, the global rating agency, 
they downgraded Sri Lanka's credit rating to on April 13th, uh, earlier in the week. And this was just one day before uh, the Sri Lankan New Year, both for the Sinhala and the Tamil community. Similarly, Fitch, another global rating agency, they also downgraded the Sri Lankan rating to C on the same day, April 13th. And uh, the exchange rate for Sri Lankan rupee was currently at 200 uh, to 1 US dollar. Uh, that was for the past two years. And recently, Sri Lankan Central Bank stopped defending the rupee, allowed it to uh, float uh, at any new value. And with the depreciation, Sri Lankan rupee is now currently floating at around 325 uh, roundabout there to every single US dollar. So this is around a 60 to 70% depreciation. So this is what we see in terms of the uh, economic uh, uh, happenings in the past three, four months. Mohal? Yeah, so I mean, and this 60% depreciation, I mean, mm-hmm. we talked about in the in earlier in the episode about uh, 25% depreciation over like four years in terms of Pakistan, but Sri Lanka has slid from 200 to 325 just within the matter of this year. So within three months, it has been a massive 60% depreciation. I mean, uh, they're in like a whole lot of trouble. I mean, I mean, Sri Lanka, as you mentioned, like has been a perfect storm of multiple economic factors, which has pushed the country into this downward spiral. Absolutely. So Sri Lanka, I mean, economic growth was declining for the past decade. Uh, I mean, Sri Lanka's, if you look at the economy is like heavily dependent on exports of uh, commodities, like let's say tea and rubber and also garments. Now, uh, I mean, today we, as we speak, there are all the commodities are highly priced, but there was a era before the pandemic where the commodities suffered a lot. Mm -hmm. So they uh, didn't get a generate as much revenue as they could have maybe they are generating now. Now the Easter bombing bomb blast, like exactly three years ago in three churches and three hotels, like killed over 250 plus people. Now this led to the tourism being highly affected. Mm-hmm. I mean, as per some estimates I read, I think they were getting before the pandemic around like 7 billion in uh, money in revenue from the foreign tourists. Now, what does this does is that um, uh, this impinges on your Forex reserves because mm-hmm. now you're not getting the valuable Forex from the foreign tourists. Uh, the number of tourists, like after the Easter bombings, they fell by 18%. Uh, and after that came COVID. So there was like an absolute uh, uh, stop on the inflow of tourists. Mm. Also, uh, as part of the electoral promises, President Godabaya Rajapaksha, as part of, as to fulfill his election promises, he cut VAT rates, I mean, value added tax mm-hmm. or something like GST, we call in India, mm-hmm. from 15 to 8%, 8% in December 2019. Also, uh, assess uh, or a tax of called nation building tax of 2%. Uh, and some other miscellaneous tax, indirect taxes were abolished. So this caused like the tax collection to collapse in collapse by half. I mean, the revenue collapsed by half. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously we had the pandemic uh, added as uh, together. It just created a severe uh, Forex issue. And also, I mean, the current account deficit, I think as for some estimates, it just completely blew out uh, because there was no money coming in. 
also i mean if you look at the some economists have pointed that sri lanka i mean among its peer countries as one of the lowest tax to gdp ratios in the world mm. so after this tax cuts uh, i mean there was like, like a lot, lot of problems created i think the thing was that covid just crushed it i mean they were already on the precipice of disaster mm. and like when you don't have any wiggle room anything like a covid would just uh, completely demolish them <laughs> so what has happened over the like i mean as you said like the 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 during the new year usually uh, there is a lot of people staying at home and celebrating with their loved ones in sri lanka but nowadays you see like instead of being at home i mean they have been protesting continuously outside the president's office in colombo yep. mm-hmm. uh, demanding like the resignation of the current president uh, uh, gotabaya rajapaksha i mean their slogan is like go gota go i mean they mm-hmm. just Want mm. to see the backup because they 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 blame the Rajapaksha's. I mean, him and uh, the former president and now Prime Minister Mahinda Rajapaksha mm-hmm. for uh, the, the the dire economic situation they face today. Right. Uh, uh, and also, uh, uh, what was sorry? Uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, oh yeah, and then they have been uh, demanding uh, the entire so the entire government. Hmm. and hmm. also uh, they have declined uh, uh, the talks uh, proposal right. that right. Uh, right. rajapaksha i think the entire cabinet uh, has resigned en masse so hmm. now they're struggling to even find people to head the ministry head the ministries and on top of these many people in the ruling party in the parliament i think they reduced to a minority in the parliament because many of the lawmakers refused to support um, any kind of uh, intervention by the government so mm-hmm. i mean it, it's like not only the economic crisis but also a severe political uh, crisis on top of it right sure. right 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 okay uh, yeah just another thing uh, was uh, during uh, covid uh, during when the pandemic struck i think there were uh, low remittances also coming into the country uh, yeah, by yeah. by their uh, expat community Uh, by their uh, immigrant population who work in the gulf and other other places so i think every every input source or every uh, source of money they could that they could make uh, obviously they saw taps run dry for them and that is how uh, they are in the current uh, current uh, situation that they find themselves in but then <laughs> the recent uh, uh, event of the ukraine war that in itself has kind of uh, forced them uh, into greater difficulty how uh, ukraine war uh, uh, has increased prices of commodities we all know that uh, fuel is quite high even other commodities like wheat uh, and other uh, essential commodities they all are um, uh, the prices have hit the roof but then uh, not only sri lanka forced to pay more there also surprisingly mohal this was something that i got to know while i was researching for this russians and ukrainians are the first and the third largest tourist blocks visiting sri lanka last year i didn't know that uh, russians would come to sri lanka or even ukrainians for that matter yeah. would come to sri lanka so i also it would be indians right i mean we live next door we have a lot of money so it would be indians uh, maybe we are second or maybe we are fourth or maybe even if we are there we don't spend as much as the russians or the ukrainians but uh, yeah i think Uh, this was a surprise for me so now that there is a dip in tourism after easter bombing that you spoke about covid war and now ukraine uh, war 
obviously uh, the tourism sector uh, which is part of the larger services sector in itself is around 60% of uh, the Sri Lankan economy, this kind of does not bode well on how the Sri Lankan economy would fare in the current financial year with nobody from Russia or Ukraine traveling to uh, Sri Lanka in this year. So I think this is how a war somewhere in faraway Europe uh, kind of messes with the uh, Sri Lankan economy. So that was one. <laughs> Another, again, was a kind of a, a very ill-thought-out policy decision of fertilizer ban. What is this fertilizer ban? Suddenly, by uh, in in all the wisdom of uh, the Sri Lankan uh, policy makers, they thought that we will switch over to organic farming, and as part of it, they imposed a, a fertilizer ban and made and wanted a full switch to organic fertilizer. Now this, they wanted a out and out uh, uh, sudden switch. And as part of the sudden switch, uh, this ended up becoming a, uh, this ended, uh, this led into a scarcity of agricultural produce. So much, the Sri Lanka, which traditionally exported rice, had to import 300,000 tons of rice from India and Myanmar in February this year. The other important crop for Sri Lanka, which you spoke about, the Ceylon tea, itself was devastated due to the fertilizer ban. Now, uh, obviously, the entire decision was not thought out properly. And then eventually, they did a U-turn on fertilizer ban. And they said, let's allow fertilizers to be used so that we can at least have agriculture sector uh, work for us. So, but then the agriculture sector itself is hardly around 1% or 2% of uh, Sri Lankan economy. So even, even if you have uh, the agricultural sector back on its uh, feet, I don't think that will support uh, the entire nation's economy. So, <laughs> I, I mean, it was like a, a totally harebrained move. I mean, usually you introduce it slowly and if you see good mm. results, you might implement it over a course of few years. I mean, such a move in middle of a pandemic. I mean, when somebody told me like uh, that Sri Lanka was importing that it just made no sense to me. I mean, you'd be think that was the last thing that Sri Lanka would have to do is to import rice of all things. Absolutely. Grow, grow that a lot. But I mean, one of the, I mean, r rumor or whatever to call it like was that uh, the some when the idea was sold to the uh, the Rajapaksha government, the one of the things was, the, oh, if you use organic fertilizers, you don't have to import costly fertilizers <laughs> so that you can save valuable forex. So I think it's just like mistake after mistake just compounded <laughs> the problem <laughs> more that like to save maybe to save forex and say, okay, we are doing organic farming. So that is good. <laughs> uh, uh, they just created a bigger problem. I mean, including uh, spending. I mean, when you have valuable forex being spent for importing something like rice, <laughs> obviously you're not going to have enough to import other commodities like uh, fuel. Right, sure. right, right. Yeah, uh, just, uh, just another point to elaborate on the tax cuts that you uh, mentioned about. Uh, again, it was part of uh, the election manifesto. Uh, as soon as Gotabaya Rajapaksa came to power, he uh, uh, implemented those tax cuts. Uh, by some accounts, the tax base uh, also reduced by around a third. The revenue, the tax revenue itself uh, came down by about one third, but there are other reports which say that the tax revenue came down by about a half. In any case, after this, 
the Sri Lankan Central Bank had no other option but to recklessly go about printing money. But then this was a common phenomenon witnessed around the world in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic. But then Sri Lanka itself had its own troubles. Now, when you start printing money, uh, the global rating agencies would obviously downgrade your financial system, effectively blocking the inflow of external funding. So technically, Sri Lanka could not borrow any money to repay existing debt. And then Sri Lanka now was left with no other option but to use its own foreign currency reserves to repay existing debt. Now, when you start uh, exhausting your uh, foreign currency reserves, this leads to further downgrade by the rating agencies. So one step led to another, led to another, led to another. And eventually, Sri Lanka is now uh, in the state that it is where it was even not able to pay its uh, foreign debts. Mohan? Yeah, I think this is similar to the situation that India faced in like 1991. Balance of payments? Mm -hmm. Yeah, balance of payments crisis where we only had forex enough to cover, I think, a couple of months of imports and... That's when uh, mm -hmm. former Prime Minister Narsimha Rao uh, liberalized the economy and opening the economy. But uh, we were in this similar situation where I think even some of the gold, I think, had to be mortgaged or mm -hmm. to uh, raise additional money. So had to I mean, be taken so, out of the country to London, I believe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So this was the this is the similar issue that Sri Lanka is facing a massive economic crisis. So coming to the debt repayments, I mean. Sri Lanka technically will need about like as per estimates like 3 billion in external assistance within the next three months to help uh, restore supplies of essential items including like fuel medicine uh, mm. as per like its uh, finance minister uh, on uh, like yesterday now the the Sri Lanka is saddled with like uh, I think around 25 billion in foreign debt which has to be repaid over the next five years but interestingly out of that 7 billion is due just this year so, I mean, they are in talks with the IMF to uh, restructure their debt and see what kind of uh, benefit do get. But in the meanwhile, they have turned to China and India for emergency loans. Uh, basically, uh, I think India has, I think they mentioned that I think we were, uh, we had given them a $500 million loan to, mm -hmm. for fuel imports and uh, also there was a talk that we would uh, lend them an additional $2 billion uh, mm -hmm. to tide over this uh, crisis now line of yeah yeah line of yeah, credit. Li line of credit but i think the two billion i don't know if it's a loan or a line of credit but uh, mm -hmm. that's what uh, they want to try i mean the, the and they have as you said like they have def i mean technically they have defaulted on their debt because they say that the forex reserves are under two billion right now and mm -hmm. they want to keep the money on the side to import essential items mm -hmm. and not use it for repayment so technically it has i mean you can say it has kind of triggered a kind of a default so in that case uh, borrowing new money is out of the question because mm. when you're in default i mean the interest rates charged to you would be astronomical true so true. this is i think that time where india should step in and help out the sri lankans to a large extent because otherwise they will be settled with even more higher debt let's say from the imf or mm. uh, other sources. I mean, now Sri Lanka has to do the hard process of sitting down with its creditors and say, okay, maybe, I mean, should they get a, some, I mean, technically a haircut, I mean, which is like a reduction on the principal, or can they renegotiate to a lower rate? But there has to be like hard work done that uh, now they have defaulted, like how they can rework to something more manageable for Sri Lanka mm -hmm. uh, uh, go, going forward.
Yep, yep. And I think obviously uh, their uh, talks with uh, International Monetary Fund, IMF, is scheduled for this week. Uh, but then it was quite surprising that uh, while they were about to go to IMF, they also announced that they would halt their uh, foreign uh, payments. So I think uh, this, uh, uh, this raises more questions than uh, provide answers as to why did they do that uh, right before they uh, would go yeah. to IMF. I think they had a maybe a large payment coming through. That would be my speculation here. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, when you are so low on reserves, I think it's better to just halt the payments and mm-hmm. just negotiate mm-hmm. that uh, if you can get something. I know that the problem now is now raising new money because you're technically in default. So nobody's wanting to lend true, you at true, a true. reasonable yep. rate. Yep, yep. Okay, so while I was looking at all this, I also looked at uh, what, what factor did the Chinese loans have? Now, um, Contrary to popular belief, Chinese debts are not actually the largest constituent of foreign debt for Sri Lanka. Uh, Sri Lanka uh, Chinese debts are actually around 23%. But then uh, uh, 40% of foreign debt, foreign debt has been issued by international sovereign bonds. So uh, this somehow is like uh, 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 not, uh, this is actually contrary to popular belief. But then uh, there are other accounts uh, who also say that the Chinese debt is actually quite low and is just around 10 to 11%. So uh, the jury is out in the open. We still don't know what is the actual Chinese influence. Be that as it may, it's quite evident that the Chinese debts have been invested on projects that did not have significant returns to begin with. Some examples that we all know uh, and uh, uh, popularly known are the Matale Rajapaksa International Airport just outside Hambantota, uh, which has the ignominy of being the emptiest airport in the world. <laughs> the, the Lotus Tower, the tallest structure in South Asia, being empty even after being completed. The Hambantota port, which was built on the promise of around 10,000 ships annually, had to be leased to the Chinese for 99 years since it was receiving only around 50 to 60 ships every year. So I think these were the kind of uh, white elephant projects that the Rajapaksa uh, government uh, uh, entered into negotiations with the Chinese. The Chinese were happy to do this. They they did not care for uh, return on investment for the Sri Lankan. They were only happy with their loans and uh, Sri Lanka becoming their vacation state. So I think that way, uh, although the loans may not be that big, but all these uh, debts are on projects that don't have significant uh, returns to begin with. The other thing that uh, we uh, uh, mentioned about, not elaborately, is that uh, this uh, economic bailout that Sri Lanka now wants from the IMF yet again would be their 17th economic bailout. Obviously, uh, 17 would imply that economic bailouts are not new for Sri Lankans. And the first one was actually in 1977. Sri Lanka was uh, facing a very tumultuous uh, uh, thing back then. Uh, there were ethnic tensions. The uh, the Tamils and the Sinhalas were at each other's throat. Uh, and uh, uh, India, India was in the midst of their own emergency. So I think uh, India could also not help uh, Sri Lanka back then. Uh, And then uh, Sri Lanka had no other option but to go to IMF. Now, as part of their negotiated settlement, 
Sri Lanka had to open up their market. So this was in 1977, way before India did in 1991. Also, uh, Sri Lanka had to wind down its public distribution system as part of their negotiated settlement. So uh, that is how uh, their first uh, economic bailout uh, panned out in 1977. Now, everybody knows that when uh, Sri Lanka goes to IMF this week, uh, IMF will obviously tell, why don't you uh, float your exchange rate and not uh, keep it uh, anchored. Uh, this, the Central Bank of Sri Lanka has already done that. And as we have uh, spoken about, uh, the rupee is now currently at around 330 uh, to the US dollar. Also, the interest rate, which was artificially kept uh, at low values, has now been uh, increased and it has now been doubled in the past one month. So the Sri Lankan government has already taken some baby steps, but obviously the IMF would want to arm twist the Sri Lankans mo even more before uh, they agree to uh, bail out uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, so I think this is uh, how uh, uh, what we can expect uh, this week when uh, the IMF convenes to talk about the Sri Lankan crisis. But I think we also need to talk about the political ramifications of uh, what might happen. Uh, um, obviously, when you have economic crisis, it will obviously lead to political crisis. And as uh, Mohal, you pointed out, uh, some of the uh, members of parliament of the Gotabaya Rajapaksa party have now uh, indicated that they would want to continue as independence. So uh, the, the party is now uh, in the government is now uh, technically in a minority government. Uh, so I think uh, that is how uh, the current political crisis is panning out. But then another thing to note is as soon as Gotabaya Rajapaksa came to power, uh, he went about bringing in an amendment to the Sri Lankan constitution, popularly called as the 20th Amendment. This uh, effectively gave greater power to the executive presidency, stripping the parliament, the, uh, the legislative parliament of its powers. In the Sri Lankan constitution, the parliament would actually act as checks and balances for the presidency. But somehow with the 20th amendment, Rajapaksa managed to over, overcome that and ended up wasting a lot of power within himself. So I think uh, this also uh, was some kind of a uh, uh, harbinger to the crisis uh, that we see now. And again, as you told uh, Mohal, uh, we have also seen India opening up that line of credit. Uh, uh, the, uh, the negotiated uh, agreement for the line of credit is not known. Uh, then uh, India has now supplied uh, petrol, diesel. Uh, Indian High Commissioner has said that uh, we would continue to supply more and more fuel supplies to Sri Lanka, possibly to the extent of 270,000 so I think um, India will continue to stand with the Sri Lankans, uh, ensuring that uh, they don't uh, go hungry. Also, I think India is sending ships loaded with sugar, rice and wheat, uh, all those that uh, India itself has uh, in surplus of. And uh, all those will uh, be to ensure that uh, the Sri Lankan population is not affected by all this. Mohan? Yeah, I think this is a good time for India to show that being the big country in the neighborhood mm -hmm. to earn some goodwill by helping out the Sri Lankans. I mean, I mean, 2 billion is not a small amount, but uh, it's 
pittance income in terms of the goodwill that you could generate absolutely and, uh, since since china has been making a lot of inroads this is a good time for india to step up and show that it means business uh, when it i mean the government says neighborhood first hmm. and so, and uh, sorry to interrupt even the uh, the former cricketers like uh, roshan mahanama mahela jayawadana and even some uh, buddhist monks Uh, who are politically quite uh, powerful all of them have uh, applauded india's efforts and have been open in saying that uh, india has played uh, the big brothers role uh, quite well and all of them are now uh, uh, gunning for rajapaksa himself to be brought down sorry mohan yeah i think yeah i think rajapaksha wanted like the opposition to join his unity the like, kind of a unity government mm-hmm. but they all know that rajapaksha is vulnerable now so i don't mm-hmm. think anybody is wanting to join the government True. and to the larger point of india helping out i mean as long as i think the loans are not used to repay chinese debt i think india should be okay mm. i mean they are in a terrible economic crisis so the main larger goal is to help them out i think india has provided i think uh, not only loans but also currency swaps where they could use indian rupees in mm. lieu of sri lankan dollars to make payments to mm. all mm. the debtors um, i think this also shows the the importance of like uh, i mean india has lot of its debt in denominated in rupees mm. now when the currency depreciates uh, you have the twin crisis that that you have like falling revenues on one side plus your currency depreciates so making those interest payments becomes much harder and this is a lesson for india that it should denominate as much of its debt in rupees as much as possible so even if it depreciates uh you could uh at least pay it and you don't get uh, uh killed by the exchange rate you know true 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 yeah uh, and you want to talk about how uh uh india also is trying to help sri lanka uh push their uh, payment of due to asian clearing union yeah so according to like Uh, sources like uh, like india is willing to commit a, uh, another 2 billion as i said before mm. while supporting the island nation with fuel mm-hmm. uh, sri lanka was thinking was that it was seeking india's help to roll over some of the 2 billion in dues mm. uh, especially those owned to the south asia focus uh, asian clearing union okay okay so i think uh, that is where things stand as of now uh, politically though gotabaya rajapaksa and his brother they came to power claiming that uh, the earlier president maitripala sirisena who had come on the on the backdrop of uh, unity government wanting to uh, heal the open wounds after the civil war had ended uh, wanted uh, the tamil and the sinhalas to forget the past and uh, make a new beginning but somehow maitripala sirisena's uh, administration or his legacy was not something to uh, talk highly about and that is what the rajapaksas wanted to uh, uh, milk and uh, they obviously said hey you know what with uh, sirisena around uh, they would uh, invariably pamper the minorities the uh, the tamils and the sinhala would be left out and i think on this uh, backdrop the sinhalas uh, kind of fell for it and they vote they voted and mass for the rajapaksas both in the presidential election of 2019 and then the parliament election in 2020 uh, when uh, uh, mahindra rajapaksa won uh, quite convincingly and became the prime minister so i think uh, that was the political uh, backdrop of how they came to power but with uh, this kind of an economic mismanagement uh, 
and uh, even the Sinhalas uh, wanting uh, to see the back of the Rajapakshas. I think, uh, uh, again, uh, uh, it shall be difficult for the Rajapakshas to tide over. And I don't think, uh, I, I see no way that they can continue and full and complete their term of five years. And they will be forced to uh, resign. Um, if not, if not right away, maybe within the next uh, six to six to twelve months, and uh, there might be some kind of a political churning as well, because the anger that we see in terms of the uh, protests on the street, they are actually leaderless right now, and every attempt by uh, the opposition, uh, Sajit uh, Premadasa and the others, uh, of uh, trying to piggyback on the on these protesters and wanting to uh, gain limelight, I think that is not uh, something that the protesters want to encourage. And they have pushed the opposition away, telling uh, this will continue to be uh, little protest. So I think uh, it, it, uh, it leads to uh, ex uh, interesting times going forward. And we need to see uh, what kind of political vacuum is created and who, who, uh, who grows in stature uh, to fill in those, uh, fill in that vacuum, Mohal. Yeah, I think the the other question is like even if they resign, I mm -hmm. mean somebody was pointing out that if they have to hold fresh elections, I mean they are already in an economic crisis. They don't have power. They don't have money. So how are they going to finance the new election? So it's going mm -hmm. to be mm -hmm. problematic that even if the opposition wants a government to go, I mean somebody ha there has to be new elections, and for that they need money. I mean apparently some board exams they wanted to conduct and they didn't have, they didn't have enough paper. So they were canceled Exactly. So, I mean, yeah. just, with, just with voting, you need a lot of paper, right? So, and the money to finance it. So in the short term, as you said, like the Raja Pakshas might be uh, hanging around, but long term, nobody knows who will be the, mm. who will form the next government, but they might be forced to resign. But right now the situation is so bad that uh, somebody has to stay in charge to tide over this uh, crisis in the next few months. And geopolitically also, the Rajapakshas were the only uh, political party or political family that were close to the Chinese. Uh, the Premadasas or the Sirisenas, they were not pali-pali with the Chinese. So I think this is a huge blow for Chinese also in terms of uh, uh, maintaining their uh, interest in uh, the Indian Ocean region overall. I, I think Rajapakshas, like in the first time, obviously they were close to the Chinese. It's an open secret. Mm -hmm. But I think in the second term, they made the amount of right noises and they met with the uh, the current government in New Delhi. Yes. And I think they wanted to, uh, I wouldn't say like correct, but like recalibrate the relations with New Delhi because they realized that, um, I mean, that they were not very well liked in Delhi in the mm, first term. Mm, mm, mm. So they wanted to make sure that India is the big boy in the neighborhood. So they have to keep good relations. So I think they were not that pro-Chinese in the second term. But I mean, as you saw, the, all these economic missteps have led to the crisis up to this point. So uh, while not being too anti-India, I mean, they still realize that uh, uh, they have to stay close to it. So whoever comes, whether it be Rajapaksha again or let's say a Premadasa or some other political party, they have to rely more. And then India has to also hold up its end of the bargain to help out as much. Uh, to, I mean, like a 2 billion loan or even if you, let's say even if you had to take care of the 7 billion this year, hmm. I mean, for a $3 trillion economy, it's like peanuts. I mean, technically we could have them pay us back in like 
nominal terms over the long term but uh, i think yep. this yep. is the time to like cut the chinese influence even more in uh, mm. sri lankan circles yeah I, uh, versus ever before you know yeah I, and then uh, don't forget uh, obviously uh, now if uh, you need an imf bailout i think uh, the imf or uh, the world uh, the western powers i think they would want to uh, uh, lodge uh, cases of uh, human rights abuses on uh, the rajapaksas especially mahinda and uh, that way they would want to uh, cut them to size and that is something that uh, the indians will have to Uh, the delhi government will have to uh, uh, walk a fine line uh, not not uh, antagonizing the rajapaksas but at the same time ensuring that sri lankan people receive an economic uh, bailout from imf mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, so i think uh, that concludes uh, the discussion on uh, sri lanka uh, mohan you had anything to add or uh, no we'll have to watch this uh, events in the neighborhood with keen interest i mean not only like pakistan and sri lanka they have this political and economic crisis i think you have even read that the central bank governor of nepal has been dismissed so as this uh, <laughs> this post economic crisis due to inflation supply chain issues um, <laughs> economic crisis is like hitting lot of countries let's say even like a lebanon in the middle east i think it will start to hit harder some of these nations in our indian neighborhood also So yep. India has to remain vigilant and help out as much as possible. Mm. I mean, who knows? There could be another crisis in, let's say, Nepal tomorrow in terms of economic crisis. So, uh, really interesting times to watch. Hopefully, all these countries can tide over their crisis and not fall into the Chinese lap more. And this is the, I think, this is the time for India to stand up and be counted. That when the crisis comes, India is always there to help uh, the mm. neighbors out. and establish uh, more goodwill than ever before you know yep, yep. okay uh, yeah so uh, before we wind this episode up uh, let's quickly switch our focus to recommendations uh, mohan you want to recommend uh, anything uh, for this week yeah so i'll recommend uh, like a twitter thread by r ramkumar so mm-hmm. he uh, this great thread on the sri lankan economic crisis where he mentioned like the dwindling revenues the lower growth and obviously the organic farming and the cut in the tax base which led to which has led to this uh, severe economic crisis in 2022 okay Kishore, okay what's your recommendation for this week yeah uh, so while i was reading about uh, the sri lankan rupee collapsing tanking Uh, i also read a interesting suggestion uh, from a us economist named uh, steve hanke am i getting the name right mohan yeah yeah steve yeah. hanke or hanke yeah yeah so he actually suggested that sri lanka should actually do away with uh, their currency sri lankan rupee and instead go for a, a currency board and that actually piqued my interest i did not know what a, a currency board was so i read about it and apparently it is like Uh, you end up uh, linking your currency to a global anchor currency and everybody knows that the global anchor currency would be uh, the us dollar and it would be uh, say a direct uh, uh, hook so let's say uh, hypothetically it can be something like 350 sri lankan rupees to 1 us dollar and this would be fixed um, and with that there would be absolutely no monetary uh play that uh, the sri lankan central bank would uh, 
would be able to do. So there would be no legroom uh, for the Sri Lankan uh, Central Bank to play around with their monetary policy. With that, obviously, uh, the the trade, the internal inflation, all these would then uh, be at the mercy of the IMF bailout. So I think that is something mm-hmm. that uh, uh, that is something that obviously would be negotiated uh, when Sri Lanka goes to IMF. But uh, I see, I don't see uh, the chances of a of yeah. a currency board really happening. But this was something that actually. Uh, piqued my interest so i think this uh, is that, like uh, like mm-hmm. el salvador which abandoned their own local currency and went to a fully dollar absolutely so, yeah but then yep. they were at the mercy of like how much dollar like if us prints another trillion of dollars <laughs> it depreciates their currency it doesn't help out the local country so i think this is like a very typical western economist idea exactly which, uh, usually, exactly. usually usually doesn't work out well for the poorer countries so I, I I see zero percent chance of this happening. Yeah, you know? yeah. So that was my recommendation. An article by it was actually a tweet by Steve Hanke, uh, recommending that Sri Lanka should go for a currency board. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So uh, that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, dear listeners, we also would like to hear from you if you have any suggestions on any topics that you would like us to cover. Do remember that these. Topics should be directly related to Indian foreign policy. Until the next time, this is Mohal and Kishore signing off. Mm-hmm.